Welcome to the big program. Thank you so much for joining me on this Monday. A little gray, a little overcast. Uh, perhaps your weekend went fast, went by right away. Perhaps everything about your weekend was simply focused at 9 p.m. on Sunday. Game of Thrones. And I'm just going to quickly tell you, I'm gonna, uh, there will be no spoilers. No spo- This is no spoiler radio. Absolutely no spoilers. Uh, throughout the entire course of Season 8, I don't know if you, here's what happened to me. I was watching it last night, loving it. And of course, then you got the big thunderstorm. And boy, does that ever some prophetic fallacy right there. Uh, Pathetic fallacy, pardon me. Uh, And uh, I I forget my Shakespeare from high school. And and of course, it starts thundering. And I think this is really cool. And then uh, the fact that I have satellite television. I don't know if you know, if you will have satellite television. Occasionally, a storm will just knock it out. So in the midst of Game of Thrones, when some heavy stuff's going on, all of a sudden, whap, it's gone. So I just had more wine. We have a big show today. You know who's with us? Kawhi Leonard is with us. Kawhi. I'm a fun guy. Thank you, Kawhi. He's going to be here with us over the course of the hour. And Kawhi, we're going to need you to step up a little bit tomorrow as the Raptors try and even that series. Also, Doug Ford is with us. Everything is made of carbon. Everything is going up. Uh, thank you, uh, Premier. Everything is made of carbon, and that is where we begin today. You may have heard in the news, of course, that we have this entire situation with a court challenge all over the carbon tax. Ontario's battle against Ottawa's carbon tax gets underway. It is now underway today in court. The PCs, of course, are protesting against the Greenhouse Gas Pollution Pricing Act. That is actually what the thing is called, that carbon tax that came into play on April the 1st. Uh, Not only is Ontario against it, also Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and New Brunswick also saying that this should not go through. They will all have uh, an attempt to actually go to or actually be able to speak to court. Rebecca's just working on getting us the live feed. If if anything's happening in court, we're going to take you. We will be taking you right to court if anything is happening. Uh, Now, all of this, as I mentioned, started on April 1st when you all of a sudden saw gas and other fossil fuels go up in price. That is because of the law that now puts that charge on gas and industrial polluters. And what's going to be happening today in court? I think we can. Can we go to it now live, Rebecca or Dusty? Anybody? Am I? No. The Supreme Court does in the subsequent trading oh, there he cases. Is. The General Motors tests there. very similar factors, and the analysis they do about why this is now you're, you're listening to the court here. This is uh, the Superior Court. This is kind of historic what you're hearing here because you don't normally get cameras or live streams of, of this sort of stuff. Also turns and now we have what's what's happening now. We we have somebody just now getting to the stand. Let's listen in. So that's happening in court. Jamie Marocker, let's be serious for a moment. Jamie Marocker is the uh, Global News reporter who is covering this for us, and Jamie joins us on the line. Jamie, are you outside of court, inside of court? What's going on? Yeah, I've stepped outside. Uh, They took a break. They actually just reconvened at noon, so they would have just kicked things off again. But what you're listening to there is actually the province's attorney general's office. They've kicked things off today. So, um, yeah, they had a few interesting things to say. Do you want me to dive right in? I I just wondered, have you heard this yet? If it doesn't fit. You must quit. Has that happened in court? Not yet. <laughs> okay, well, that, that's likely to happen. Likely. 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 
I, this thing is so arcane and boring and dull. Really, the more interesting thing to me is the fact that we have a camera in there and we're getting a live stream. Have you ever seen that in court? Never. Never in a Canadian courtroom have um, I seen a live stream being allowed. So, I mean, it's very interesting, like you said, also historic. Um, but other than that, yeah, it's been pretty tame, kind of like watching paint dry. Here's, here's the thing that um, if you've ever covered court, and I'll just share this quickly with our listeners, I would love to have a day, a work day, that worked around court. Because what do they start at? Like at 10, they go to, what, 11.30, take a 90-minute break, and then, then they come back for an hour, and it's lunch for two hours. And then they come. Like, it's ridiculous, isn't it? Yeah, we're in and out. We're in and out. Um, they are taking quite a lengthy lunch today, too. I think from 1 to 2.30. So there's a break there, and then they're back in. Uh, until 4 p.m., and then they're done for the day. This will carry on for four different days. And they're not even set to make the decision on this, Alan, until June. You can't handle the truth! Uh, Just quickly, I want to update, because uh, Jamie was talking about the camera being in there and how interesting that is. Uh, And it is not the only time this has happened. It'll be the first time in more than a decade, though, that Mm -hmm. cameras have been into a court of appeal. Typically, cameras not uh, allowed in courtrooms. This is a quote from uh, the province's chief, chief justice, or rather special counsel in that office, and the court is making this exception because of the Greenhouse Gas Pollution Pricing Act. Uh, while rare, here we go, here's, here's the trivia thing that you guys, can, you can just throw this into a conversation later, Jamie, and you sound really cool. You can say uh, that the last time this happened mm-hmm, was 2007 when there was a webcast on the hearing concerning the conviction of Stephen Truscott. So you just throw that in. See, I'm helping you, Jamie. Wow, look at that. Yeah. The uh, things you know. Yeah, the things you So t- tell me again, what's going to happen over the course of the day? I understand this is a three-day thing, and are you actually going to have to cover this thing for three days? I mean, I don't know that we're going to stop in. It's three days past here, so it's a total of, of four days is what it's expected to last. I'm hoping that I don't have to sit in every single day today. I mean, they're moving pretty quickly, I will say that. So the Attorney General's office, um, they admitted that climate change is a thing, that greenhouse gases exist, that we need to fight against them. But basically what they're saying is that Ottawa imposing this tax, the tax that came in on uh, on April 1st, is not the way it should be done. They're calling it an illegal tax grab. And honestly, from what we're hearing from the justices here in the Court of Appeals, it doesn't sound like they're quite convinced after this first set of arguments. So um, there's quite a bit more to go. Let's just quickly dip back into that live stream. I don't know. Can you hear this, Jamie, as we play it? This is from inside the court. Can you hear this as well? It must be remembered that the POG clause can comprise only prohibitions. Can, can Jamie hear this technically? Is that possible? So Probably. Can you can hear it. Kind of things I've been discussing about but who is, who is this? Can you give me a sense? Do you, know, do you recognize this voice? I don't know the name, but I can tell you, we had Joshua Hunter up first from the Attorney General's office. This is the gentleman sitting beside him. So I do know. The point I take from Caroline Mulroney's office. Uh, Okay, so this is the provincial government side talking. What was actually this? Wow, this is riveting. (laughs) Just. You're so cheeky. Just get everybody. Just get turn it up. Turn it up a little. If you're driving, just turn it up. If you're if you're somewhere else, just get closer to your radio. The, the pollution at issue there was... Marine. And I can actually see it. You, if if you want, if you're interested in seeing a dude in a robe, and man, does he look good in that robe, 
Uh, you can actually go online. Uh, and I, I think we're live streaming it. Let's just go to globalnews.ca. Might as well pay us as opposed to the court system. But here, quickly, I just want to quickly tell you that what they're arguing about here is an interpretation of the Constitution Act of 1867. And as Jamie mentioned, it's the division of powers between the feds and the provincial government. In essence, Ontario is arguing here that Ottawa is intruding on provincial jurisdiction by trying to regulate what is, quote, and this is from the submission from the provincial government, quote, nearly limitless swath of human activity that produces climate changing pollution. And, and I think, Premier, did you have something you wanted to add? Everything is made of carbon. Everything is going up. Jamie, what's next then? <laughs> Everything is made of carbon. <laughs> you, Jamie, are made of carbon and you are going up in price. I'm going up. That's right. No, you know, it's funny. They did bring this up um, in their deliberations right off the hop. And um, the justice actually said, well, do you honestly think that Canada would basically abuse the system to be charging, you know, everything, every small little thing? And they're saying the province is saying that's what we're opening up the door to. All right, so that will uh, still be going on in a couple of days. And then do, do we know, is it a reserve decision, like a written decision? Yeah. yeah. Uh, like I said, they're going to be um, making that decision sometime in June. June. Yeah. Well, you enjoy the next couple of days, Jamie. You, Thanks so much, buddy. You, you have a good time. And if this happens... If it doesn't fit, you must quit. I want you to call me immediately. Will do. All right. Jamie Marocker is a global news reporter, and thank you so much. I'm having too much fun with the audio today. I apologize. We want to take you quickly back down to the court. Can we go back? Dusty, can we do that? So you are now listening again live. This is very unusual, uh, this this entire thing, what you're listening to here. It's unusual to have a live stream from the Superior Court. But what is being argued here is fascinating. It's arcane. It could be deadly dull, but my next guest uh, promises me that he's going to make it interesting. This is Simon Archer, who's a partner at Goldblatt Partners, and he's on the line. Simon, how are you? Hello, Alan. Uh, good to be on. I'm fine. Uh, can you make this interesting? Because this thing is a, a really a, an arcane argument that really pivots on some very old language. Uh, true. Uh, can I make it interesting? I sure hope. I'll give it a stab. It's it's a 150-year-old document they're trying to interpret to understand uh, a problem that uh, really has really only emerged and come to the front of the political scene anyway in the past 10 or 15 years, even though we've known about it for many more than that. And there are, there are political debates swirling in Canada around it. But, but the, the problem is, and in fact, the whole case is really pivoting around how you're viewing or how you're characterizing what the feds are trying to do uh, with the uh, with the greenhouse gas pollution pricing act, and you'll hear one side talk about it. Oh, they're imposing a tax. It's an unfair tax or an incorrectly imposed tax. Um, and you'll hear the other side saying, No, we're just trying to create a basic level minimum standard playing field for uh, Canadian provinces to. Uh, uh, meet at when they put their own tailor-made uh, for their own uh, province or economy or conditions, when they put their own plan into place. And Simon, Simon, as, as they discuss this, the federal liberal government, is, as you well know, its, its position is that climate change is an issue of national concern. And what I guess I'm wondering here is beyond the entire concept or, or, or the controversy over climate change and carbon capture, 
could this establish some kind of precedent that gives the federal government even more jurisdiction over what previously may have been believed to be provincial jurisdiction? Well, that's certainly what Ontario will argue, and I think the Saskatchewan government was arguing that it's swallowing the entire field, so to speak. Um, but the federal government is saying quite the opposite. They're saying, look, we're doing the minimum possible to meet our international commitments and so on, and we're only doing what we've done before when a, a new problem has come up and we've had to fit it into our, our old constitutional wording and document. Um, so, for instance, privacy legislation in Canada has a very similar type of framework. Uh, the feds have a framework out there, and uh, provinces are free to put something else in place as long as it meets the certain minimum standards to ensure that you know, privacy is protected for Canadians and the transmission of personal data and so forth. And this is enacting a similar kind of scheme. There's no doubt that it's a new problem and a new solution to it, but I'm not sure that it's fair to say that it's uh, a huge jurisdictional grab by the federal government. It's more like they're kicking a hot potato between themselves. There's a little bit of climate denialism going on, and, and uh, there's criticisms out there that we're not meeting our commitments to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And so the feds have put a certain solution in place, and the provinces, as you might expect, where they differ politically and ideologically, uh, are opposing uh, the federal solution and saying they've got a better way to do it. Simon, we play this, we play this from the Premier quite a bit now. I, I, we we kind of make light of it, but, okay. I, but it, I'll play it for you, and then you tell me whether or not that this is an argument that's going to hold up in court. Everything is made of carbon. Everything is going up. So that's the position of the premier, that everything's made of carbon, and therefore that he's going to tax everything. I mean, is that, it, it strikes me as a bit ludicrous. I agree. It's uh, inflammatory a little bit. I, I mean, it's a complex problem. There's no den denying that. It's, uh, you know, there's a lot of sources of emissions, but uh, we do have a framework for understanding what that problem is. But you've put your thumb on it. That, the Ontario's position, in a nutshell, is what that two-second clip just said is that there's a lot of sources of carbon and greenhouse gas emissions, and uh, it looks like it's trying to solve everything with one little bullet. And I'm not sure that's the case. Uh, I don't think it's going to win the day in court. Um, but what we're going to see happen is there's a Saskatchewan reference going on at the same time. So is this one. They're both going to get appealed to the Supreme Court. And then there's going to be some kind of determination by that court. So we're going to hear it won't be the last word on it uh, out, out of the Court of Appeal here today. My old professor, uh, Hogg, at uh, Osgood used to call this a dialogue between the courts and the legislatures, where they punt a problem back and forth like A dialogue. That. Yes, a, a dialogue. dialogue. Uh, Simon, before you go, so this is Simon Archer, who is a partner at Goldblatt Partners, one of the big law firms here in Toronto. In, the, in your law firm, mm -hmm. I'm just, I just wondering, how, how often is somebody shouting? You can't handle the truth! Like, does that, is that a joke that just, <laughs> is that a legal joke that you just shout at each other? Do you just say, like... You the truth. How often do you hear that? About 30 or 40 times a day. <laughs> <laughs> Simon <laughs> Archer. Thank you so much, Simon. No I really appreciate you be being with us. Uh, let's move on quickly to uh, some other things that happened in Queen's Park today. And we're talking about the budget. Of course, today is the first day uh, of uh, question period. Bef after the budget was delivered, of course, on Thursday, the first opportunity for the opposition to ask questions about the budget. And, and the premier had a couple of interesting things to say. I want to play this first one where he, he sort of, you know, he, he does this whole Goldilocks thing, not too hot, not too cold, just right. So here is his argument as to why he thinks the, the first budget uh, of his government has hit the mark. Even the 
Toronto Sun was shocked, saying we're spending too much. Uh, so you know, when the Toronto Sun's saying we're spending too much, and the Toronto Star's saying absolutely nothing, I think we hit it bang on. Absolutely bang on. I, I'm just going to have to quickly just call the Premier on saying that the Toronto Star has said nothing, because that's not true. Martin Red Khan, of course, is the uh, Queen's Park uh, columnist for the Toronto Star. He's a, a friend of this program. He's often on this program or on Focus on, uh, Ontario as well. And here's what he writes about the budget. Quote, there are no savage cuts in the first Ford Fidelity budget, which could easily have been delivered by former Premier Dalton McGuinty back when he belatedly discovered austerity. Just as the Liberals took their time getting back to balance, the Tories are in no hurry. Uh, trust us is what I'm moving to another bit of the column here. Every political party uses this same pregame playbook. Scare the pants off people with dire warnings of cutbacks, then come to their rescue with a budget that's not as bad as advertised, allowing everyone to breathe a collective sigh of relief. So that is the Toronto Star, who did react, Premier, to your budget and... What, what, what was it sort of, you know, in the middle, like not too bad? Maybe. But let's let's call it for what it is. Here's another thing that the premier said that stuck out to me uh, in a question from Catherine Fife from the NDP. This is about uh, businesses. And here's the premier saying what the business community thinks of his government. I can't believe what I just heard. Oh, I know. That businesses don't like this government. Businesses love this government. <laughs> they love it. The businesses with one employee, two employees. Absolutely love it. What they don't love, Mr. Speaker, is the socialist mentality that we've heard in here many a times. They don't believe in socialism. Socialism does not work. You put empower the businesses, empower the people, put more money into people's pocket, they're going to go out and spend it and stimulate the economy, stimulate jobs. The last thing I need a lesson from the NDP about businesses. That is Premier Doug Ford in the House just to earlier today responding to a question from the NDP and saying, I, I don't need no lessons from no socialists. Socialism does not work. I'll just, I'll just leave that where I found it. Uh, I want to read this to you real quick because it just has come out in the New York Times. The New York Times has now published an article about Justin Trudeau and about all the problems and the, uh, you know, the swirling controversy over SNC-Lavalin. I want to read a little bit of this. Uh, for you, because it, it's absolutely fascinating to, to to read something from the Times, which is obviously, you know, this is for an American audience, for a worldwide audience. And just really quickly, it, it really digs into whether or not JT, where Justin Trudeau is a feminist. And it, it it is something that we have all talked about in this country. But now the international world is noticing that, hold on, the old uh, feminist credentials up there in the great white north are getting a bit uh, tarnished, like dirty snow. Uh, Try as he might, this is I'm quoting from the New York Times, try as he might, Mr. Trudeau cannot seem to move past the controversy that has sucked up most of the air in Canada since February, when the country's first indigenous female attorney general quit after accusing the prime minister's office of inappropriately pressuring her to consider a civil rather than criminal penalty for a company accused of corruption. That's a pretty good, that's a pretty good summation of where we are. I'm continuing from the New York Times. The episode has propelled Canada into an agonized, bad-tempered, and occasionally hair-splitting argument about the rule of law. Hmm. It has also left Mr. Trudeau, whose cabinet by design contains equal numbers of men and women, repeatedly trying to defend his feminist credentials. 
Interesting. That in the New York Times just uh, just moved on the online version of the New York Times just a little while ago. Well, the first half of the show has been pretty much focused on court and focused on what's going on. Do we still have that? Can we go back to the sleepathon? Or this is back down to the Superior Court now. And back down to the Superior Court where they are arguing whether or not it is constitutionally mandated that the federal government can impose a carbon tax on us. And if we can just listen now quickly to, it would just pot him up. This is the argument now. This is the argument from the federal side. The federal side now arguing. If it doesn't fit, you must quit. All right. I am so excited about uh, my next guest, who has an absolutely fascinating book. Matt Stroud has written a book called The Thin Blue Lie, about high-tech policing. Uh, What do you think when you hear this sound? This is the sound of a taser. That's what that is, and of course you know that uh, tasers are now ubiquitous amongst police forces around the Western world. They were brought in, they were sold to us as uh, community members as a more effective, a safer way of policing. It would cut down the number of civilian deaths, the number of uh, interactions with police that went the wrong way. And in 2000, the year 2000, Toronto Police began a pilot project with tasers. And this, for many of us as journalists and as police, was the first time we had seen this technology. And in 2000, the Toronto police gathered the media together and they demonstrated how a taser would work. They demonstrated it on some of their own members. And then, in an attempt to be a forward-thinking reporter and uh, be involved in it, I decided that, well, if we're going to test it out, we're going to test it out. Here is me being tasered. This is what it looks like when a person is hit with 50,000 volts. To say that it was painful is an understatement. It was extraordinarily painful. My muscles went absolutely limp. I fell down. I had to be held up by two paramedics who were standing on either side of me. And as quickly as the pain had appeared, it disappeared. I stood up. I shook it off. I felt fine. It was an extraordinary experience. But has it led to better policing? My next guest has looked into that, and his book, The Thin Blue Lie, is now available. Matt Stroud is an investigative journalist, and he joins me on the line. Hi, Matt. Hi, Alan. How are you? Uh, I'm good. I understand that you also were tasered for this book. Uh, Yeah, your description there really uh, sent chills down my skin. Yes, I was was also tasered. And how would you describe it? Anything different you would say? No, your your description was pretty accurate. I, I tell people that it feels like a Charlie horse that takes over your entire body. Um, but the, what is what was most disturbing to me about it is the, the fact that you just can't control anything. You just go right to the ground, um, which is uh, it's debilitating and and startling. Tasers have not led to a decline in gun use as marketed. They have instead become a new tool, sometimes for police abuse and often employed against entirely non-threatening people for a failure to follow a police commands. 
in your investigation, the the advent of technology like tasers has it uh, helped police in terms of their interactions with us, the the civilian public. Uh, I think in certain circumstances it does. I mean, there are certain kinds of technology that, when used in a holistic fashion, uh, can improve the way that uh, police interact with civilians. But uh, in the case of tasers, in in many circumstances, I argue that uh, it is not a helpful tool. When we look at the amount of technology that Toronto Police are bringing in, and in our next segment we are going to talk a lot about Stingray. Are you familiar with that technology? I am, yeah. Uh, we have that here, and we're going to talk to a Toronto Star reporter about what we can find out and what we can't find out, and it's more the latter from Toronto Police. You write, uh, Matt, in your book about technological solutionism. What does that mean? I think that uh, police leaders, when confronted with really complicated and troubling problems, often don't have a solution at the ready. Uh, And the solutions that are obvious are also extraordinarily complicated. So if there is a rash of African-Americans being shot by uh, particular by officers in a particular police department, that means that the police department probably has to rethink the way that its officers are trained and rethink the way that they carry out their jobs. Um, and an easier solution for a police leader is to say, you know, we have this problem, it's with firearms. So um, we're going to purchase a lot of tasers, and that will give police the option of using a less than lethal weapon rather than a firearm. The same thing has happened with body cameras. So you have uh, allegations of abuses by police officers, and police leaders come forward and say, you know, this is a problem, uh, and so we're going to spend millions of dollars on body cameras so that we'll be able to see all of the police interaction. Um, and that doesn't get at the core of the problems that are presented in these in these major circumstances. It's just a solution that police leaders can uh, can come forward with, uh, so that it looks like they're making a change when they really aren't. You, you support body cameras. Uh, in uh, concept, I support body cameras. Yes. How how could they be seen as a, a negative in any way? Um, I think body cameras are great in that they. Uh, provide a view into uh, police interactions. Where they become negative is that um, when uh, government leaders uh, and legislatures make decisions about keeping that footage, uh, uh, withholding that footage from the public. So in in a lot of U.S. states, including my own, I live in in Pennsylvania, uh, there have been laws passed to make it virtually impossible for reporters and citizens to see the actual police, the actual body camera footage that is produced. Um, And that is anathema to the entire premise behind purchasing body cameras. I mean, body cameras were introduced as a way to bring more transparency to police interactions. And so if there are laws that are set up um, to make sure that that footage can't be viewed by anybody, what is the point of the police body camera? Um, the answer by you know people who are uh, setting these laws is that the the footage isn't actually for transparency; it's for evidence purposes. And if that's the case, then I I don't believe in body cameras. If they are purely a way to uh, bring more charges against people, um, then that's not the idea that uh, around which they were sold. Uh, and so I'm, I'm against that. Speaking with Matt Stroud, who's an investigative journalist, whose uh, most recent book is The Thin Blue Lie, 
the failure of high-tech policing. Matt, we're running out of time, but I want to just address the title. Why did you call it Blue Lie? Who's being lied to and who's lying? Um, one, of the, one of the main uh, uh, points of interest that I point out in the book uh, is that of Laquan McDonald. <clears throat> Laquan McDonald is in Chicago. He shot and killed by a police officer there. Uh, and over the course of you know, 14 months, people are trying to get dash cam footage that is related to his death. Um, and uh, when that dash cam footage is finally released, um, uh, you know, people are very upset about it. And Rahm Emanuel, the, the mayor of Chicago, stands up. And as I described earlier, he puts uh, he puts out a solution. Right. You know, he, he says we have a problem. Uh, with police violence in Chicago. And here is the solution that we have. This is the way to solve this problem. And the solution that he puts forward is we're going to spend millions of dollars on tasers and we're going to send million, spend millions of dollars on body cameras. That to me is a lie. He doesn't actually believe that tasers and body cameras are going to solve the problems that were related to the killing of Laquan McDonald. Um, and so that is, that is the premise behind the book. These are very complicated issues that uh, need to be solved in a comprehensive way. And when leaders, government leaders, police leaders come forward and say that they can solve these problems with technology, that is a lie. Matt Stroud is an author, an investigative journalist. His book is The Thin Blue Lie, The Failure of High-Tech Policing. It is available now. Matt, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Here, just by by popular demand, because I know people enjoy this, this is uh, from 2000, yours truly, being hooked up to a taser. And if you know how these tasers work, of course, you see them as the guns, like the little yellow guns. What they do is they fire out two electrodes, two wires, with sort of fish hooks on the end, with little hooks, and they burrow themselves into your clothes or into your flesh in two different places. And then that creates a connectivity, and then it's a wire. It's a, you know, and so then the current flows through the wire, through your body, and that's how you end up just falling to the floor or maybe screaming out in agony. This is what it looks like when a person is hit with 50,000 volts. Oh! That's me screaming out. That is uh, from 2000. That is a uh, nice piece of tape that I occasionally, I, if I ever need a job, I just put that on my what's called the reel, you see. Uh, and I can tell you that back in the day when we actually just used tape, the librarians at Global News had that tape just to the, they had it out at all. It ne- they never filed it. They just every once in a while, like, let's just, let's look at Carter's scream in agony again. I enjoy that. I hope you enjoyed it as well. But talking more about the technology that is being used right here in this city, I am pleased to welcome Kate Allen, who writes for the Toronto Star on science and technology. And Kate, you, you were talking in your pieces recently about Stingray. Tell me what Stingray is and what we know about it. Uh, sure, I'll do my best. So a Stingray, so Stingray is just a brand name um, for one device, but uh, we use it to, there's, there's lots of other sort of technical and legal names for this device, but basically it's a device that imitates a cell phone tower. So when it's activated, it forces all uh, mobile devices, all cell phones within range, to connect to it and identify themselves with uh, certain types of identifying information. And what do we know about what happens to that data? Well, uh, that depends on which police force you are talking about. So 
the RCMP, after sort of a lot of years of questioning from journalists and others, have have told us about their um, their policies around the collection of this data. But the Toronto Police, who just recently acquired this device, um, they ha- when I asked them what their um, policies were, they have said that they're still in development and they will be in place before the device is used. But we, as the public, don't get to know what those policies are? Not yet, apparently. <laughs> I'll let you know. I'll write another story about <laughs> what their uh, third-party uh, data policies are, but so far they have not revealed those to me. The New York Times also has a fascinating article this week about uh, Google, perhaps, um, mm-hmm. doing some cooperation. Do we have any evidence of uh, warrants going through our Canadian system that is using Google? Even you know, even if you're not even using Google, they're just giving up where you are and, and that sort of capture of that information from a certain area? Yeah, it's a great question. I read the same story and had the same question, and um, I, I don't know the answer to that yet. We're, we're going to have to try to find out, I guess. Kate Allen is with the Toronto Star. Kate, thank you so much for being on. We're definitely going to have you back uh, when we get more information, but this is certainly something. Did you want to hear me scream again, by the way? Did that you... sounded terrifying, yeah. Play that, play that tape. You just want, you want, can we just, for Kate... This is what it looks like when a person is hit with 50,000 volts. There you go, Kate. Enjoy that. Just (laughs) enjoy the rest of your day. That is uh, Kate Allen. Thank you so much for being with us. Earlier in the program, I I was talking about this piece that has just come out in the New York Times. I know you think you're like, is that all you read, dude? It's fake news. It's the failing New York Times if you listen to the president. But uh, this fascinating article about Trudeau and whether or not he's a feminist and the perspective from south of the border, from uh, the New York Times. And I'm I'm thrilled to have Sarah Lyle, who is a New York Times reporter, who has written this piece. Uh, Sarah, thanks for joining us on the program. Hi, thanks from, I hope, the land of the non-fake news newspaper. <laughs> yeah, don't make me taser you. Uh, or don't make, don't make me scream out in pain again. Um, but here's okay. what you wrote in your piece, that try as he might, Mr. Trudeau simply cannot mast, make a move past this controversy. What, from the perspective that you have looking into our country, what are you seeing in terms of Mr. Trudeau's overall image? Well, you know, it's a different image when you're there than when you're here. And I certainly can't speak for my entire country, which, as you know, is a divided country at the moment. But, you know, when you go up to Canada, as I did for a while to take a look at things for this piece, it looks like there's sort of small issues and large issues. And the small issues are obviously the actual things that happen, the controversy over the attorney general's, you know, disposition of a particular company. Do you just laugh at that considering the sort of stuff that you're dealing, like the the reporting that your colleagues are doing on what's happening in the United States? You're like, are you serious, Canada? This is a this is a thing? (laughs) Well, it's it's always different when you look at it from abroad, right? Um, so there's that, and then there's the resignation of the two ministers, and then there's this massive uproar and conversation it's caused. And what I was sort of interested about is the conversation and trying to separate what is sort of political posturing, which people from all sides always do, and what seems to be the issues here that are really exercising people. And what seemed to be the... the the sort of biggest philosophical issue was what does it mean to be a feminist? What does it mean to have a feminist government? You know, how do you, um, 
How do you play out what your ideals are? Is it possible? And what happens when different people have different ideas about how that works on the ground? We're almost out of time here, but do you think that there's just inherently a danger in labeling yourself a feminist or a feminist leader? Because inevitably, you're going to run into the cold, hard facts of the cold, hard reality of governing, and then you're not going to look so good. But isn't it weird, you know, when when you label yourself anything, you run into possible trouble because different people always have different ideas of what they think you mean and what they would mean if they were that person. So conservative, it's the same thing. Some conservatives in the U.S. think they mean one thing. Others think they mean another thing. Liberals, it's the same thing. And so it's a, it's a fertile ground for everyone to argue about this stuff and once anyone's used any word at all, it feels like. Sarah Lyle is a New York Times reporter, and you can read her piece on whether or not Justin Trudeau is still a feminist. It is now online, and you can read it there. Sarah, thank you so much for being on our program. Thank you very much for having me. Have a good rest of your day. I've had a fantastic show. or (laughs) I've had a fantastic time. I don't know if the show has been fantastic. I'll leave that to you. But I will leave the final word in the radio program to my good friend, Kawhi Leonard. Kawhi, sum up how you feel about this program and, and and sum up for us how you feel about yourself. I'm a fun guy. We'll see you tomorrow.